You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Tested. This series explores the book of 1 Peter to learn how we can respond when our faith is tested. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. For those who are just joining in, we are in a series in uh, 1 Peter, and we're kind of nearing the end of, of the series and uh, it's, it's, it's something called a letter. It's an epistle. There's the Bible, there's 66 different books of the Bible. Uh, and they're, they're all different. They're all different stylistically. Some are history. Some are poetry. Uh, some talk about the past. Some talk about the future. And like I said, this is a letter. And this was a letter written to a church. When Jesus, he came to earth and he, he died for our sins and he ascended into heaven. He's like, okay, now go and start this thing called the church. And so guys went, the, the early leaders, they went and they started churches and and the technology of the day was a piece of paper and a pen. And so they wrote letters uh, to encourage the church for the- theological foundations and practical uh, instruction. And that's what Peter is doing in this series. He's just offering just uh, theological foundations, practical instruction, and encouragement. And this group of believers really needed it because they were, they were undergoing some suffering. They had been scattered throughout uh, all of Asia Minor, and they're like, hey, you know, where's God in, you know, everything? And so Peter comes to encourage them, offer theological foundations and some practical instruction. And today, I mean, we've been hinting at suffering and, uh, through this series, but today Peter goes right at suffering. And so that's what we're going um, to talk about today. And for most of us, when we think about suffering, it's just something that we'd rather not have. I mean, I don't know if we, you know, we want to vote here, but anybody like want to suffer today? Anybody? Um, not any more than you already are? Okay. Uh, Suffering is just something that we just hope to, you know, skip over, pass over. We want to endure it, you know, like we want, you know, blue skies. We want good, we want lots of money. We want lots of happiness. We want, we just want good event after good event after good event. And if I have to suffer, please help me know how to just, you know, maybe I can take a pill just to kind of be, you know, gone from it. Or maybe can we skip over it? How do we endure? How do we handle suffering? Well, Peter's going to do us one better. He's not going to just talk about how we handle or endure suffering. He's going to say how we thrive in suffering. Like how suffering can actually be a good thing. Suffering that won't make us bitter, but actually will make us better. And this is good news because we all suffer. Uh, Everybody suffers. I mean, I've just in this community right here, uh, you've experienced relational pain, you've experienced physical pain, you've experienced emotional pain. Uh, some of you uh, have a very serious illness that you're dealing with. It's reoccurring in your life, or maybe you know someone who has that illness, or some people you know are very near to death. That's causing you to suffer. You're suffering because of a child, or maybe you're suffering because you want a child and you don't have one. Things that you own are breaking and you can't afford to fix it. You're losing possessions. You're being scorned or unfairly treated at work. Or maybe you've lost your job. Uh, You've lost income. Uh, You're depressed and don't know why. Uh, You're suffering. Maybe you're even suffering for your faith. Maybe you're you're being belittled. Uh, The Bible word is reviled because of your faith. So how do we do this? Well, one of the things that Peter's going to tell us, he's going to say, uh, don't be surprised by this. So he's saying that suffering is not a surprise, it's a plan. Suffering in your life is not a mistake, it is a plan. Life teaches us that we will all suffer, and Christians aren't immune, immune from this. Contrary to a lot of uh, Christian popular thinking, uh, uh, Christians are not a protected species. 
um, we suffer like everyone else. Jesus said, even said that a servant is not above his master. If I took it on the chin, you're going to take it on the chin. We're going to suffer. Pagan religions, what they would try to do is they would try to uh, do good things and please a god or god so that the gods would be good to them. So they would scratch the back of the divine so the divine would scratch their back. And this thinking has been superimposed into uh, uh, churches so much so that when, when we do suffer, we kind of like, whoa, 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 what's going on here, God? I've been a good person. I've done good things. You, you owe me. Why am I suffering? That, that is pagan thinking. It's totally antithetical to gospel Christianity. Here's the big idea of, of Christianity, that you and I have sinned. And Jesus stepped into humanity and he paid the penalty. He died on the cross. He suffered on the cross and he rose again so that we would be saved. Christianity and our salvation, we don't have this just in spite of suffering. We have our salvation through suffering. It's how he died. It's how we have it. So, so Peter's going to say, hey, don't be surprised by this as if something strange is happening to you. The problem you and I have is that we live in America. Um, that's our problem. American culture is probably the worst society of all time at preparing its citizens for suffering. Prior to my modern society, most people believe that this life wasn't all that there is. Uh, it's kind of a modern idea, primarily, that, hey, this, is, this, this life may be all that there is. Most people thought, um, historically, you know, I'd like to be happy. I'd like to have love, money, and status in this life. But if I don't, that's okay. Because what's really important is that I have love, money, and status in the life to come. And there's great consolation, a tremendous consolation in that. Jesus said, hey, you know, if you, anyone, if you lose houses and homes, you're gonna, it's going to return to you a hundredfold. And so our secular society, and I'll use that word secular because the Latin word there means seculum, which means now. That's what it means. Our, our society is dominated by the now. We want our food now. We want our happiness now. We want our service now. We want our peace now. We, we have to have everything now. And if it doesn't happen now, it's a total waste because this world is all there is. If you lose love in this life, if you lose happiness in this life, if you lose peace in this life, then... It's gone because this life is all there is. And if you think that way, loss in your life, suffering in your life is almost unbearable. Because if you had a bad day, you can't get that day back. It's gone and and it's, you know, it's going to lead to another bad day and another bad day. James, in his letter to the church in Jerusalem, says, when you suffer, count it a pure joy. Our culture says, when you suffer, sue. Somebody messed up. Somebody made a mistake. This should not be happening. I mean, I live in the United States of America. Somebody is to blame. I should not have to suffer. You know, where's the hotline I can call to complain? But those of us who know that they have a Father in heaven who loves them, suffering is not a surprise. It's not a mistake. It's a plan. It's okay, what's the plan then? It's to make you greater. It's to make you greater. If you are a Christian, and I realize not everybody here is, if you are a Christian, there's nothing external. There's nothing outside of you that can do anything to diminish you, can only make you greater. Not even death. There's nothing external that will minimize you. It will only make you greater. First uh, Peter 1, this is message number 2. For those keeping track, this is message number 16. 
uh, he said this, which is very similar to today's text. He says, in this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Anybody here been grieved by various trials? I mean, not just a trial, but various multifaceted trials. So when you get done with this trial, there's another one waiting for you. Anybody been grieved by that? Well, he's talking to you. Rejoice. So that the tested and genuous of your faith, more precious than gold. So we're talking about something valuable here. That perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is, what is suffering? What are trials? Because it says that you'll experience various trials, or the text we're reading today, of um, um, fiery trials. And that's what it is. To, to, to go in a trial is to go into the fire. That's the kind of language he's using here. He's using this kind of silversmith-type language, the fiery trial, which means porosis. It's a word that means purify. And I'm, I'm assuming there's not a lot of silversmiths in here, but, so I might need to explain a few things. Uh, basically, they would take metal ore, they'd take ore, and they'd stick it into the fire. They'd take this, this, this collection that would have uh, pure metal and impure metal, and they would stick it into the fire to, to purify it, to, um, to create separation, actually. Because when you, when you just have a hunk of ore, you can't tell where the pure parts start and the impure parts begin. It just all seems the same. But when you put it under the fire, it begins to separate. And you could see what is the pure part and what is the false part. Sometimes you put, it, sometimes you put an ore in and just a little bit burns off because it was mostly pure. And sometimes you put it in the whole thing burns up because it was all impure. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. What does this mean for us spiritually? It means that you and I have a divided heart. Uh, that we don't know it and we don't know it until we get put into the fire. We think, yeah, Jesus is our number one. He's our everything. And in, in under normal atmospheric conditions, man, you can love and just Jesus, you trust Jesus, but you have these other things that are really great too. So I love Jesus, but I also love all these other things too that are really, so I mean, just, you know, they're not bad things, but we intend to make up relationships and my job and money and health and all these kinds of things. And so what happens when we get under fire, it separates the pure, the pure part from the impure part. And we say things like, well, I lost my job and I don't have money and relationships and all these things are going bad. What good is God if I can't have this? And in those moments, the fire reveals the impure part of you. You, you trusted God, but not really. There's a dividedness. There's a dividedness in your heart. Jesus told this parable. He said... This is, you can find this in Matthew 7. He said, there was a man who went and he built his house upon the rock. And when the storms came, they beat upon his house, but his house didn't move because he was built on a sure foundation. Then there was a man who built his house upon the sand. And when the storms came, his house got swept away because it was built on something unstable. So is the man who builds their life on me and my teachings, Jesus says, is like a man who builds his life on a rock. Someone who doesn't build their life on me and my teaching is like a man who builds his life upon the sand. And when the storms of life come, they get washed away. Now, you and I who, who trust in Jesus, we would say, yeah, you know, like, my life is built on the rock. I mean, we sing songs like, my, my, nothing but the rock of Jesus. You know, my life is built on nothing less than him, the solid rock of Jesus. But what happens is a storm comes in our life. 
And we realize, oh my gosh, our life begins to shake. Well, wait a minute, I thought I was built upon the rock. I thought my life was supposed to be secure. And my life begins to shake a little bit. In those moments, you realize, like I have when I've gone through fiery trials, that I've got one foot built on the rock and I've got another foot built upon the sand. And this part of me is secure, but this part of me begins to shake. And it's God putting me in the fire. And I realize that part, and so it's an opportunity for me to nudge a bit more over onto the rock. He's wanting to purify me. What? How do, you know, how, do you, how do you know when he's done purifying? When you are in the image of Jesus. They asked us, I, I read a little bit about silversmiths. And one of the things, they asked, like, how do you know when you're done, you know, putting it in the fire? How, how do you know, like, it's been in the fire long enough? He's like, when I can take it out and I can look at it and I can see my reflection in the metal. And that's what Jesus does with you and I. He sticks us in the fire. He sticks us in the fire. When's he going to stop? When he can look up and he can see his own reflection in us. He's, bi- he's building something in you that's deep and sustainable. That under normal conditions, you, you, you can... So, like, under normal conditions, you, you, can ha- you can trust in God, but you can also live with all these other idols. You can also make these things really important. It's only under fire that the, the impure of ore gets separated from the pure. Same with you and I. It's only when we get put into the fire. It's only when we experience suffering that our true trust gets revealed. And the, and the untrust kind of gets pushed away because God's producing something in us. And if you're anchored in Jesus, you will persevere. Uh, that word persevere, in fact, it says in uh, Hebrews 12, it says that, that, that Jesus, that Jesus on the cross withstood the full wrath of God. It says, before, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that word endure means to hyperstand. It means to really stand strong. And so when all of hell came upon Jesus, he hyperstood. And what this is saying is that if you trust in Jesus, and if you have a relationship with Jesus, and you make Jesus, all of hell can come against you, and you will hyperstand just as he hyperstood. He's wanting to produce a steadfastness in you. He's, wanting, he's not looking to punish you. He's looking to purify you. There's an old Romanian pastor who said that Christians are like nails, that the harder you hit them, the deeper they go. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. And my, my, my thing for my life, and I hope this to be true of life, for your life, is that when life hammers you, and it will hammer you, the deeper you will be pressed into Jesus, that you will be refined as pure gold. So suffering is not a surprise, but it's a plan to actually make us better. That's why Peter says that we should not be perplexed, but we should rejoice. And this is the second thing that should happen in suffering, that we learn about suffering, is that suffering is a reason to rejoice. Suffering is a reason to rejoice. I mean, that seems pretty self-explanatory, doesn't it? I I don't need to explain that. It's obvious, right? I made you guys a chart. I know you're going to be impressed. I made this, I made this by myself in clip art, and you're going to be so impressed. Let me show you this. Now, I expected some, not laughter, but thoughts of, like, it, like impressed noises, like, ooh, ah, yeah. You're not supposed to laugh. It doesn't make it, it doesn't help. Now, here, here every human, if you're a human being, this is what happens. This is what you think. Suffering increases in your life. Joy goes down. 
That's, 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 I mean, anybody who has, anyone who's human, if I'm suffering, that means joy goes down. That's how we think. That's been our experience. We suffer, joy goes down. Now, let me tell you something Peter says. Peter says, rejoice in so far, or as much as, or maybe even more, but rejoice as you share in Christ's suffering. This is what Peter's saying. Let me show you the next slide. That as suffering increases in your life, so should your joy. That doesn't make sense to me either. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that as suffering increases in our life, joy comes with it. That, that's what the, the Christian life lays out for us. One of the promises of the Christian life, rightly oriented, that when suffering increases in our life... So let me just show you a few th- places where this, it talks about this. Romans 5. This is something the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, not only that, but when... But we, excuse me, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Sounds a lot like what Peter's saying. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. In Colossians 1, this is Paul again, he just flat out says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Wow. That's counterintuitive, counterhuman. Jesus says, blessed are you, happy are you, joyful are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Now, sometimes if you, you know, like in the plastic Christian world, you look at that, of course, you know, I mean, I do anything for, I would say, until someone does this to you, that someone does this to you and you stew on it. You don't get better, you get bitter. And then he says, but he says, against you falsely on my account. And this is really important because Peter talks about this too. You can suffer for doing good and you can suffer for being dumb. And um, it's not talking about suffering for being dumb. uh, In fact, it even says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So you you can go off and, and go off the reservation and, you know, do and just live you know, a dumb life, you can make bad choices, you can choose to ignore God and, and, and run it. Paul says in Galatians, God will not be mocked, you will reap what you sow. Um, so there, there's a kind of suffering just because we, we do dumb things. We make dumb choices. You know, we, we buy things we can't afford, and we suffer for it. We we, we, we say bad things about other people. We gossip and then we suffer in relationships. We, are, we show up late to work and we lose our job. That's not an opportunity to rejoice. That's an opportunity to repent. But there, there's sometimes what Peter's talking about, not, hey, look, we're all going to do dumb things and bad things will happen. But actually, you could be doing everything right. You could be doing everything perfectly. And you will suffer. Jesus did everything perfectly, and he suffered quite a bit. Hebrew, in fact, here, this is what he said. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. So you've got the cross, horrible, 
horrible instrument of execution, humility, pain, suffering, matched up with joy. James says this. He says, count it all joy. See, this is one thing we have to do. We do have to, we do have to kind of step back and like really understand what's happening here. So he's not saying, hey, when, you know, I, I, he's not saying, hey, when suffering happens, your heart skips a beat. You have to consider it. You have to, you have to get, you have to reconcile it, which is kind of an accounting word, like put it in the right column. Like you have to get, put it in the right column. You have to put suffering in the right column. You've been putting it in the, my life is a total waste column. He's about ready to say, you need to put it in the, your life is a total joy column. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, which again, that word testing just has to do with what we've been talking about with, you know, the purification of metal, purification of our life. Testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. As odd as it sounds... Suffering is an opportunity to rejoice. In fact, if, it, if we don't see it as an opportunity to rejoice, one of the things that James is going to say, if you read on in uh, verse 5, he says, if you lack wisdom, ask for it. So he's, can we go back to that verse real quick? Skip to the end, sorry. So he says, lacking nothing. He says, so... So he says that through counting this all joy, complete lacking nothing. And then the next verse is if you, if you lack wisdom, ask for it. Basically saying that if you don't see suffering as an opportunity to rejoice. Now, this is the Bible saying, this is not me. Don't get mad at me. Okay? Deal? Deal? All right, I need to hear it. Okay. Um, the Bible says that when you, when, you don't see, when you don't see suffering as an opportunity to rejoice... It's a result as a lack of wisdom. You're not seeing things right. Wisdom is just seeing and is seeing something from its broadest perspective. And so what James is saying is when we don't see, when we when we don't see suffering as an opportunity to rejoice, we're seeing things, we're seeing it very narrowly. I mean, it just makes total sense because, like I said, our culture is built upon now. You know, 30-day-itis, and if I can't have it now, then I, you know, it's just, I have to have it now. And this life is all there is. We see things from a very narrow perspective. So if you don't count it as joy, you need to broaden your perspective of what's really happening here. You need to ask for wisdom if you last, because that's what you and I, we think like suffering equals joy. That's like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And James feels that from us and says, hey, if you lack wisdom, you need to ask for it. God will give you that perspective. And this isn't just talking about wisdom in general, but it's talking about a specific kind of wisdom. C.S. Lewis said this, in kind of comparing our current culture with old, older... The cardinal problem of old was how to conform the soul to objective reality, and the solution was wisdom. But the modern mind, the cardinal problem, is how to subdue reality to our wishes, and the solution is a technique. So what he's saying there, he's saying, you know... People of old would say, okay, here's objective reality. How do I contort my life to bend around what is? The modern, the way the modern man sees things, the modern woman sees things is, uh, how, do I, how do I get reality to bend about, 
how do I get reality to bend around my wishes? And the answer is technique. It's a pill. It's 12 steps. It's something else. So wisdom is saying, okay, this is reality. How do I see reality in, in light of wisdom? But what we want to do is say, how do I make reality fit me? How can I contort things? How can, is there, there's got to be something I can, there's got to be something I can do to do this. Because when we get an adverse, we're like, how could this happen? There's got to be a book. There's got to be a pill. There's got to be a way out of this. Something needs to change. And this is the world's wisdom, which is foolishness and arrogance. James says that we need to change our heart to conform to reality. And that is wisdom. Paul had this wisdom. Again, wisdom is seeing things from its broadest perspective. And, and Paul says that I... Uh, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What momentary light affliction was he talking about? Well, he was beat five times with 39 lashes. He was shipwrecked twice, and one of the times he was shipwrecked, he like swims ashore only to get bit by a poison snake. He was stoned to death. He was left without food, without water. Light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that Christ has for me. Whether you can bear a circumstance or not, whether you can bear suffering has nothing to do with the severity of the trial, but the wisdom upon which you've received it. Some people handle death better than some of us handle traffic. Something goes wrong, it's unbearable to us. And so we experience trials and we learn nothing. We get nothing out of it. To the degree that you hold to the world's wisdom, which is, you, you know, will be the degree that suffering will be just that. You'll suffer and learn nothing. It'll be unbearable and unhelpful. The events of your life do not make you. The events of your life do not make you. But the wisdom you use interpreting these events make you. It has everything to do with your joy. Your joy in life, your joy, your happiness will not be determined by the circumstances around your life. They will be determined with the wisdom which you interpret those circumstances. If you don't have that wisdom, you can ask for it. You can have that today. And, and that's the truth. If, if, our, if we don't see... If we don't see suffering as an opportunity to rejoice, and what that means, it means worship. It means like it's being able to say God is good in the midst of that. Because this is what, this is what he says. He says when, we're, when we suffer, it says uh, that we are blessed and the spirit of glory rests upon us. That when these things happen, this, that, that we are blessed and the spirit of glory rests upon us. You see, we, I think we, what, he's, what he's trying to say is that we experience God we experience him in a unique way, not when everything's amazing, but when everything is dark. Spurgeon, a pastor from the 1800s in England, said, They who dive in the sea of affliction bring up the rarest of pearls. Another pastor from England said something similar. He says, He didn't mind going in the cellar of suffering because he knew the king kept his best wine there. We can dive into the cellars of suffering. We can dive into the sea of affliction, knowing that we're only going to find joy in the midst of that. An old a pastor in uh, Russia, Alexander Solotstein, um, was he was in a Siberian prison, and he at toward the end he suffered a lot. And toward the end of his life, he said this: 
When I lay there rotting in prison, I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. It took him a while to learn this, but this is what he said toward the end of his life. He said, bless you, prison, for having been my life. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the kind of eternal, deep-seated joy that must be in you if you could look at that situation and say, bless you, prison? I'm glad that this prison was my life. It's the way Paul was. Paul was totally buoyant. In, you know, he writes in Philippians 4.11, he says, I have found the secret to contentedness in all things. I mean, you couldn't get to this guy, Paul. You took his stuff away. He's like, ah, I just junk anyway. Counted all his loss compared to knowing Christ. You put him in prison. He's like, well, I hope you don't mind noise because I'm going to be worshiping Jesus. Oh, we're going to kill you then. Well, to die is gain. Well, we're just going to beat the mess out of you. Well, I don't even count these light momentary afflictions as compared to knowing the eternal weight of glory that's waiting for me. You just couldn't get this guy. That's freedom. Freedom is not in the accumulation of stuff. It's not, it's not having your life padded with comfort and isolated from suffering. It's learning to be, have joy and peace in all circumstances. There's nothing external. There's nothing outside of you that can diminish you. It can only make you greater. The suffering in your life, it's not a mistake. It's not strange. It's not a, shouldn't be a surprise. It's a plan. And it's a plan for your good. It's a plan to make you greater. It's a plan to produce gold in your life. It's a plan to increase your joy, not decrease your joy. Because, because what, what the Bible wants you to know isn't like when it comes to suffering, isn't like you guys just need to toughen up and like learn, you know, not have such a glass jaw. You need to be like be able to withstand. You know, be, you know, it's not what it says. It's not, it's not its argument. Its argument is there's something better for you. There's something better for you. It offers something better than the loss that you think you're experiencing, whether that's a loss of possession, a loss of relationship, a loss of your physical body, there's something greater. And there's a kind of, it's something that you're not going to experience outside us. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, it just paints this beautiful picture of this, this New, New Testament community and w- what we're talking about today. Was, you can read about this in Hebrews 10, uh, 34, but... Basically, they had, some of them had gone to prison, and those who hadn't gone to prison experienced the, what it says, the plundering of their property, their, you know, their tools for trade, and their, all their furniture were thrown out into the middle of the street and set on fire by guys with big knives. And it says that they looked over their shoulder, and as they looked at their possessions going up in flame, it said they rejoiced. They rejoiced. Because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. And that's it, guys. God, has some, God, has, God wants to t- take away the things in your life, the impure things in your life that you think that you need to be happy. They're not bad things. We just made them ultimate things. And through the fire, he wants to separate that out and take them away from us because he wants to show us something better. So that we can declare, as the psalmist said in Psalm 63, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life.
Let's let it go. We, we can take the punches on the chin. We can, we can take being reviled. We can take the loss. We can take the pain. We can take the suffering. Not because we're tougher, because we know that we have a better possession and an abiding one.